Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, his co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience during the Watergate uh, scandal. I am also an MSNBC legal analyst and the wearer of hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is a special one that I got for our guest, Joyce White Vance. And it is a group of knitting things. It's got some needles and a little bit of knitting and then some skeins of yarn. I hope I said that word right since I've never <laughs> bought one. I don't know, but I think that's how you say it. And uh, that's because Joyce is an avid and very prolific knitter. So if there are any knitting fans out there, I think Jill got this on Etsy, so you can get yours on Etsy too. Hopefully you can put up a picture so you can find it. Um, but over the course of the last month, you've heard from two brilliant legal minds, Barb McQuaid and Kimberly Atkins Store, who both are Jill's co-hosts of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law as part of our iGen Politics and Hashtag Sisters-in-Law crossover podcast series, since we share Politicon as our producers. And today, like Jill said, we close out the series with another Hashtag Sisters-in-Law X Expert, Joyce Vance. And Joyce is, as Victor said, one of my sisters-in-law co-hosts. She's also an MSNBC legal analyst and a columnist. She also co-hosts a second podcast called Stay Tuned with Preet Bharara, who was, like her, um, a U.S. attorney in the Obama administration. She's also a distinguished professor of the practice of law at the University of Alabama Law School, and before that, before going to the University of Alabama, Joyce was the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, during which time she served on the prestigious Attorney General's Advisory Committee. Before becoming the U.S. Attorney, Joyce served as an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the same office. She was there for 18 years before becoming the U.S. Attorney. And before that, she was um, in private practice and she will talk a little bit about that, I'm sure, as we go ahead. But her law firm was Errant Fox, Kittner, Plotkin, and Kahn. And then she switched firms to Bradley, Errant, Rose, and White. Now with a new name, Bradley, Errant, Bolt, and Cummings. In Birmingham um, is where that firm was. And Professor Vance received a BA from Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, magna cum laude, and a JD from the University of Virginia Law School. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to get to be with y'all. Oh, same here. So for the first two episodes of our crossover iGen Politics hashtag Sisters-in-Law series, um, we started with questions about Barb and Kim's backgrounds. We want to do the same with you. And after that, we want to ask you about the recent hot legal news about the recent um, draft Supreme Court decision in Dobbs that if it is finalized, will ban abortions after 15 weeks or maybe earlier. But let's start by getting to know you a little bit better. You've had a fascinating life, and I'm sure my peers as well as Jill's will enjoy that. Um, and th perhaps there's no better way to start off. You were born in Utah and raised in L.A., where I'm at now. What were you interested in before college? Um, surfing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time at the beach. Um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I liked the beach. 
um, the beach was accessible as soon as we got our driver's licenses. So uh, that was sort of my obsession. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, and you moved to Maine um, to go to Bates College, which is a small liberal arts college. Um, how did you decide on Bates and what were you involved in there? Yeah, sure. So I debated in college um, and I had gone to a summer program after my junior year and the coach from Bates was one of the many college coaches that we interacted with. And, uh, uh, you know, I primarily looked at schools that were big debate schools for college and ended up picking Bates. Hmm. And did that inspire your path to go to law school? So I think I always knew that I was headed towards law school. Um, Maybe not, you know, where I ended up, but I was interested in law. I was interested in practicing law. Um, my family is Jewish, and and we're Reform, which is sort of the the least um, strict variant of Judaism. But I had actually a pretty good, a, a fairly um, detailed education in Jewish law as as part of my Sunday school experience, and was really fascinated um, by that. It's interesting, and you chose University of Virginia specifically um, for our young listeners out there who may be interested in going to law school one day. What attracted you to UVA? So you're making me confess to all of my dirty little secrets, but I'll just <laughs> say that I went to visit friends at a bunch of different law schools after I was admitted, and they all seemed to be very serious and hardworking and competitive. And then I went to visit um, two friends who I won't embarrass by naming them, who I knew from um, they had debated at Dartmouth and were two years ahead of me at Virginia. And I um, stayed with them while I was down there. And it was, I think, a week or two out from exams, but they were mostly involved in going to this huge party at Virginia called Easter's that no longer exists. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is the law school experience that I want. Um, and I really liked Virginia. I liked a lot of the, just the, the way the school felt. It wasn't, although UVA is a huge school, the law school itself on North Grounds at that point in time had, had that sort of small collegial feeling where you could get to know people. I have to say, Joyce, my dirty little secret is I wanted to go to Columbia because I had seen a movie Barefoot in the Park <laughs> with Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, and I thought New York was just the coolest place. And so I wanted, I wanted to go to an Ivy school, but I more... Importantly, wanted to live in New York City. So it's there you go. It's funny the things that animate your school decisions. You know, we have four kids, and I've often thought um, a lot of it depends on is the weather nice when you're looking yeah. at a school? Yeah. Is the tour guide that you get really good? It's funny how those little things influence your life in such big ways. Oh, for sure. As someone from Chicago, I knew I wanted to escape the cold weather, so I chose L.A. And um, I don't have to uh, bear the cold weather and snow, which is which is a nice part of L.A. for sure. Um, let's talk about what you did after law school. What was your first job out of law school? Um, was it in D.C. or Alabama? Yeah, my first job was in D.C. with a law firm called Errant Fox, Kintner, Plotkin, and Kahn. You'll hear a lot of people say that they didn't have good experiences in big law and that just was not um, my experience at all. I had a fantastic time. In fact, I spent um, last weekend with one of the partners that I worked for at Errant Fox. We um, did a lot of libel defense work and, and First Amendment work. 
And it was sort of a dream come true straight out of law school to get to do commercial litigation, but also to get to be involved in the First Amendment work. Another one of my partners did a lot of civil rights work pro bono. And so I was able to work on a big case um, that we were doing with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in Washington and actually spent more time in a courtroom in federal court my first year out of law school than I think any young associate ever expects to as a result of that work. Hmm, interesting. And another interesting fact about you is that you are uh, married to a state court judge, Bob Vance, and his father Not was... a very good one. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I hope he's not yeah. listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a very good judge. Yeah. And his father was a federal appellate court judge, um, right. first in the Fifth Circuit and then the Eleventh Circuit. Um, but then he was assassinated. I'm wondering if it's uncomfortable to talk about the impact of your father-in-law's assassination on you and your family. Um, well, you know, obviously something like that is shocking. It happens out of the blue and you're suddenly thrust into the middle of a criminal investigation and that's not really a great place to be. Um, but my father-in-law was this sort of very big, loud, not in a bad way. He just filled up a room when he walked into it kind of person. And he had been a very deep influence on both of our legal careers until he was killed. And I think we continued to hear his voice whispering in our ear. I, I know I still do a lot of the time. Sometimes when I'm making difficult decisions, I'll sort of hear his common sense, plain spoken wisdom sort of rattling around in my head. With your husband being a judge, did you ever have conflicts while you were a U.S. attorney? You know, very rarely, because in Jefferson County, Alabama, where we are, uh, the judges, they have a very unusual arrangement. They're divided into civil and criminal. And Bob is a civil state court judge, and he had sort of a complex white-collar docket. Um, and so once or twice, we would have something where maybe there would be a case that we were removing to federal court that would be in front of him. And then we would just, one of us would recuse as appropriate. I usually tried to get him to recuse. And so that makes me want to ask about your view on um, Justice Thomas and the conflicts arising from his wife's political activities. Do you have any thoughts about that and whether or not there should be an investigation to that set of events? So I think painting with a broad brush, that situation points to the need for the Supreme Court to adopt stricter and more enforceable guidelines for ethical behavior by the justices. That's necessary for the public to have confidence in the integrity of the court. That whole, you know, just set, set aside for the minute what's actually going on. And just the, the bare notion that people believe whether it's accurate or not, that there's some sort of impermissible influence. That does so much to damage the court's credibility in the eyes of the public. And there's no place that it's more important for government institutions to have credibility than the court, which doesn't have an army to enforce its decisions. People obey the court in essence because at the margins, they trust it to be fair. Mm -hmm. And the court could definitely use some more credibility right now, especially. And we don't often see Supreme Court justices impeached, but do you think impeachment should be on the table for Justice Thomas? I think it's premature to say that. And let me just say this up front. I don't think our politics should influence how we view Supreme Court justices. You know, it's inherently a, a political process. The president gets to appoint the justices like 
he or she gets to appoint the rest of the federal judiciary. And the benchmark should be whether they're qualified, not whether you like their political views, but whether they're qualified. And of course, that's very Pollyannish to say that. That's not the system that we have. Judicial appointments are highly politicized. Um, and it, it's really a mess that's going to be very difficult to untangle, but it's going to have to be straightened out in the interests of having a um, judicial branch of government that can perform its function. So, you know, I think impeachment is something that would be on the table depending on the results of investigation. The, the bigger question in my mind is whether there will be any sort of investigation at all. We've seen a Supreme Court that was quick to put up a wall when there were protesters on its front steps, a Supreme Court that was quick to launch an investigation when one of its draft opinions was released. But we haven't heard the Chief Justice announce an investigation or any indication, really, that he's looking into what's going on with Jenny Thomas. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens with that. Let's uh, go Back to your time as um, a U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, you were nominated by President Obama after being in AUSA there for a long time. What are the politics of getting nominated? <laughs> there weren't very many politics for me. Um, the only elected official in Alabama who was a Democrat at the time was uh, my congressman. He was a former assistant United States attorney in the Middle District of Alabama, and we had um, worked together and knew each other. And uh, he advised me early on um, that it was something that I should consider. And you were um, unanimously, unanimously confirmed by the Senate. That is no longer It was longer a different happen- era, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Totally a different, different era. era. <laughs> that seems to no longer happen these days. What do you think that says about the state of our polarization, and is that dangerous to justice? You know, it's really problematic. Um, Federal prosecutors in general and U.S. attorneys, by and large, even though they're appointed by presidents, take take the admonishment that they need to leave their their friendships and their biases and, and their allies and, you know, who they know. They need to leave all of that stuff at the door when they walk into the office. And, and by and large, 99% of the time, that's what you see happening. So my nomination was pushed by Jeff Sessions, who was then Alabama's junior senator. Um, I was one of the first five U.S. attorneys confirmed in the Obama administration, and that was because Senator Sessions thought it was important to see a number of U.S. attorneys go through together from both Democratic and Republican-led um, states when it came to Senate membership on the Judiciary Committee. So I was confirmed along with Preet Bharara in New York and Tris Coffin um, in Vermont to, to make sure that people understood that bipartisan work was going on. Yeah, that seems to be lost in the Senate these days. Um, and during your time as a uh, U.S. attorney, you established a civil rights enforcement unit. What was the impetus for creating one, and why wasn't there already one um, when you went into office? Well, I can't really speak to the latter question. I mean, I'll, I'll just say this. When I was in the criminal division in our office for about the first 10 years that I was there, I did a lot of our civil rights prosecutions. For instance, I was involved in the church arson task force, um, 
did some cases involving cross burning. It's hard to believe that those were still going on at that point in time, but they were. Um, and then at the beginning of the Bush administration, um, I was transferred by the new U.S. attorney into our appellate division and ultimately became the chief of that division during her eight years tenure, but wasn't doing civil rights work anymore. And frankly, there wasn't a lot of it going on. But, you know, um, I live in North Alabama, so uh, civil rights work is sort of a full employment plan for lawyers who are inclined to do it down here. And when I became U.S. attorney, I became aware very quickly of a backlog of work that needed to be done. Some of it was criminal, but, you know, Victor, it's really interesting. A lot of it was civil. And so, in essence, um, a number of the lawyers in my civil division, we sort of were running a plaintiff civil rights law firm um, down on the second floor of the office. And Tom Perez, um, who went on to be the head of the DNC and is now running for governor in Maryland, but at that time was the assistant attorney general in charge uh, of the civil rights division, Tom actually had sort of freed up the relationship between Maine Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office to make it easier for us to do civil cases. And so in the course of working with Tom on a challenge to Alabama's um, anti-immigrant statute that it adopted in 2011, it was essentially, they they self-styled it as a deport yourself uh, approach to immigration. We challenged the constitutionality of that law successfully in court. It became clear we had a lot of work to do, so we put together a civil rights unit, um, and I actually hired some folks expressly to do that work. And how has that office evolved since your time there? So, you know, obviously there are changes in emphasis and priority um, among different administrations, but something that I'm really proud of is that uh, one of the investigations that I initiated was an investigation into Alabama's prisons. Um, Sort of, here's the the shortcut headline to understanding this case. Alabama's prisons statewide uh, keep people in conditions that violate the Eighth Amendment. They're cruel and unusual. There's open sewage that runs through prisons. There's overcrowding. There's sexual violence. The, The... conditions in Alabama's prisons are horrific. And we began an investigation into them. Um, And initially, the um, request from Maine Justice from the Civil Rights Division was pick one or two prisons. We've never done an entire prison system statewide. We don't think we have the capacity. Pick the one or two worst ones. And, And so I had to tell them, I can't do that because it's a system-wide problem. We're going to have to do the whole system. And at this point, Vanita Gupta was the acting assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division. She looked at the investigation that we were working on, and and it's sort of a complicated process. Inside of my office under this CRIPA statute, which you use to challenge conditions that institutionalized people are held in, you got to do this deep dive investigation before you even open the formal investigation. So my office had been working on that. And Vanita read the report and it it was instantly apparent to her, like it was to us, that we were going to open on the entire prison system. And so a, a bunch of the folks in my office really devoted a lot of time to this case. Late hours, after hours, meeting with community members, going to see prisons, which was pretty traumatic for the lawyers who were involved, you know, civil lawyers who'd never been into a prison setting before and were going into these prisons. And the case was 
just about ready to bring when I stepped down as U.S. attorney. You, you may recall um, the outcome of the election in 2016 was a little bit unexpected, um, and I thought that I would be um, filing that case early in the new year. But as things turned out, I, I resigned the night before President Trump was sworn in and left that case in the capable hands of, of my civil chief. Um, and so that's, this is a very long-winded way of answering your question, and the answer is this. In my office, when important work was going on, it did not stop due to a change in administration. And, and my Trump successor, Jay Town, looked at the prison case, and to Jay's credit, and, and he's candid about this, you know, he, he'll say, I didn't become a U.S. attorney to do nice things for people who were incarcerated. But I looked at this case, and it was about civil rights and human rights, and it had to happen. And Jay was the one who filed the case in court, continued to push it, continued when things got bogged down to make sure that we got to the next level with that case. And I have tremendous admiration and respect for him because of the work he did in that area. That's really good to hear. And at the end of the Obama administration, you joined um, the University of Alabama Law School in 2017 as a distinguished visiting lecturer uh, in law. What other jobs, I'm wondering, did you consider and what led you to become a professor? <laughs> um, so I, I tend to have great luck and good fortune in my professional career. Um, I was talking with a um, large company about uh, becoming their deputy general counsel, um, people that I just adored and really, really wanted to work with and had had some outreach from a few law firms and was talking with them. Um, and to be honest with you, the, the problem would have been picking which of those jobs I wanted to do because they were they were sort of all jobs that I wanted. I, I sort of was at the point where, I, where at the end, as I'd narrowed things down, I thought, I'd like to do all of these things. And then really out of the blue, um, an opportunity to teach sort of um, landed in my lap. And I ended up um, going to the University of Alabama, where my father-in-law had um, gone to school and been president of the student body to teach, which is just one of those um, just great gifts that just happens in your life, the opportunity to work with students. So you're teaching the next generation of lawyers and, and young people, but you're also teaching, in a way, the country as a legal analyst on MSNBC. In 2018, you were offered a position um, at MSNBC. What led to that? And um, how do you view your time at MSNBC compared to your time teaching um, University of Alabama? Are they more similar? No, I mean, you know, my, my day job, my 100% of my time job is that I, I'm a professor at the University of Alabama Law School. Um, I love the job, but it is very time-consuming, especially as a new professor when you're writing your classes for the first time. And I find that I'm absolutely horrible at teaching the same class the same way two times in a row. So, for instance, this summer, I'm massively updating my criminal law syllabus. I'm moving a lot of it online because I hate it that my students have to pay for a casebook. Don't tell the wonderful people that write casebooks that. But a lot of what I teach is, is cases that are more recent. Um, so I'm, I'm doing a, a lot of work like that. I mean, that's really what's consumptive for me. And, um, you know, being an analyst for for MSNBC and NBC was something that just sort of happened when the Obama U.S. attorneys 
were um, all fired as a group, and I was one of the few people that had already left, so I was around to comment, and I thought, oh, this is fun. Maybe I'll talk on TV once or twice, and isn't that cool? Um, And I know Jill knows how this goes, right? Then they keep calling you, and then they realize that CNN and, and CBS and some of the other networks are putting you on, and they decide, oh, no, we don't want that to happen. Um, So, you know, they ask you to sign a a contract that makes you exclusive to them. And that's sort of how that evolved for me. Just another stroke of great good fortune, because I've met so many smart, wonderful, fascinating people, not just lawyers, but across disciplines. I mean, don't you think, Jill, one of the joys of what we do is meeting all these like doctors and, and foreign policy experts and military experts. It's really great. It is one of the best things. I love particularly meeting some of the journalists who I've read for so long and getting to interact with them um, and people like you who I got to meet in the it's green really room. really cool. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it, is, it is fabulous. So let's, let's move from there, though, to talk about this big news event, which was the leak of the draft Dodge, Dobbs decision, and uh, talk about what that means in terms of not just abortion. Um, and we've discussed on hashtag sisters in law the impact that it would have on abortion, but also on other rights that are based on the same constitutional principle, things like same sex marriage, interracial marriage, contraception. They're all grounded in the unenumerated rights of the Constitution. And just to introduce our audience to some of those thoughts. Let's talk about how broad do you think the impact of this draft, assuming that it becomes the final version, uh, this language particularly will be. And um, just talk about that part. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the big question, right? Does this draft that's been leaked, that is um, reprehensibly broad, in the way it views women and women's rights. Does that become law? Was there something strategic about the leak or was it opportunistic? Um, this, the, the predication for this argument that Roe versus Wade should no longer be good law is grounded in the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause. And as Jill says, unenumerated rights, like rights that aren't specified in the Constitution. You know, we all have a lot of rights, things that we do that we take for granted that the Constitution doesn't say that we can do. It doesn't say that you have, you know, a a right to get an education. That's a Supreme Court case that didn't happen until the 1980s that, for instance, grants a right to um, kids, uh, regardless of citizenship status, from kindergarten through 12th grade to go to school. Not in the Constitution. Your right to vote, interestingly enough, the Constitution has some rules about voting, but it never specifically says you have a right to vote. It doesn't specifically say you have a right to have an abortion. It doesn't specifically say you have a right to marry whoever you want to marry, regardless of of their gender. And so the problem is, and and I think I jump pretty quickly, Jill, to Obergefell and um, the right uh, to have same-sex marriage— because I'm worried that doctrinally it's on that same branch of the tree that Roe versus Wade is on. It's an unenumerated 14th Amendment substantive due process right. Um, 
Whereas some of these other rights, like Loving versus Virginia, the anti-miscegenation case, there's at least a little bit of an equal protection rubric there that might could survive independently. But given the makeup of this court, what we know about this court, where the politics in this country are trending, I'm very worried that gay marriage is next. Me too. And in fact, Victor and I are planning to have a series a follow-up on the Dobbs decision once it comes out. And one of the people we've scheduled, and actually even before it comes out, is Jim Obergefelt. We look forward to talking to him because I think that is the one area that I would say is next. But I think given what we know about the politics of this court, I think that despite the fact that they said oh no, this is only about this one right. It's only about abortion. We're not talking about these other things. I don't believe them. And given the testimony they gave in being confirmed, there's no reason why we should believe them. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. It makes me so angry. You know, I don't ascribe to the view that, that they committed perjury, but you listen to Alito in his confirmation hearing, you know, and he pretty much says, well, you know, whether I like Roe or not, it's been around for a long time and it's good precedent. And then in the opening pages of this draft opinion, you know, Roe was absolutely wrong from the beginning. Well, if he believed that, why didn't he say that in his confirmation hearing? And, and if he didn't say that in his confirmation hearing and he's saying it now, why should I believe him in this opinion when he says he's not coming after any of our other rights? He's doing what's convenient. He's doing, um, in, in many ways, engaging in disingenuous behavior that's really unworthy of a Supreme Court justice. I find it to be very distasteful. You know, judges have different views of things. That's why cases go to the Supreme Court, because they're difficult cases. And very often they can go either way. A lot of Supreme Court decisions are 5-4. What we're entitled to expect from Supreme Court justices is intellectual honesty. And what we got here from Justice Alito and the other three to four judge justices that he's lined up is, is I think, really hypocrisy. Both Victor and I completely agree on that and are concerned about the future of the court being accepted as the final arbiter of all of our issues, because that's what it is right now. All legislation can be challenged, and the only final word is always the Supreme Court. And if we don't trust them, we're going to be in in really serious uh, circumstances. And when you talk about it's not perjury, it always gives me a chance to mention my favorite perjury case, which is Bronston, which is one which says, you can be deliberately misleading as long as what you say is literally true. It's not perjury. So when he says things like Roe is settled law, that is a statement of truth, and it it's is true. literally true. It's not yeah. responsive, exactly. So it probably will not meet a perjury standard, but I don't think that's the standard that we should expect from justices of the Supreme Court. I think we are entitled to more than that. Um, but, okay, so neither of us obviously likes the outcome in terms of what it says for the future of women in this country. Um, and for, for the future of other rights. But is there any legal justification or rationale in the draft that justifies the conclusion? That's an interesting question. Um, 
And I'm going to say no. I think here's the problem. This is precedent. There are standards for overturning precedent. You know, there's a four-prong test. One of those prongs is you shouldn't overturn precedent if it's a a law or a right that people have relied on. I can't Mm -hmm. think of very many things that people, women, but men too, have relied on more than Roe in making their decisions, right? What zip code are you going to live in? It has not really been on the table because Roe has been the law nationwide with a lot of variation, but still with accessibility of abortion, although it's diminished over the last decade. Now, you know, what do you do if you're an incoming college freshman and you've agreed to go to the University of Mississippi and all of a sudden you realize that that could be an impediment to your health? I mean, you know, just leave aside the average woman, but what if you have some medical condition that makes it really dangerous for you to carry a baby to term? You can't go to the University of Mississippi. Um, It just, it really changes the calculus in people's lives. And just that one factor alone. I mean, there are other arguments, right? And doctrinally, um, you know, do do I agree with this absolutely insane analysis that he does of 14th Amendment uh, due process rights where he relies on history and tradition and he goes back to, you know, jolly old England and the founding of the United <laughs> States and says, well, you know, because women didn't have any rights in the 1800s, they can't have any rights now, and it's nuts. Well, what's nuts is, of course, that means so many things that weren't in the Constitution are now at risk, and particularly in terms of women. I mean, women weren't in the Constitution at all. We had no rights, and so it's very frightening. But, of course, then you think about, well, what things were in the Constitution? Slavery was okay, so is that going to come back? Um, it's, it's, it's totally frightening. But I, I think we can look forward to some very important rationale in the dissents. And I expect them to be as powerful as the bad language in the majority opinion is. Uh, so I, I don't know if you want to comment on what you think the two or three most important points the dissenters will make is. So I expect the dissents to be powerful and emotional and vociferous, and I think that they will um, summon the ghost of RBG uh, and talk about how she would have viewed this day. You know, I had tweeted that I expected that if if the draft memo was adopted, that the dissents would be very powerful. And a lot of people tweeted back at me, and, and allow me, just because it's been one of those weeks mm-hmm. where none of us are at our best, I'll just make this sniping comment. A lot of men who didn't have law degrees said, well, dissents don't mean anything, you know, as if to say, what do, what do you know? And, and here's what I think powerful dissents can do. They can galvanize people to action. You know, if RBG had not written the dissent that she wrote in Shelby County versus Holder, the voting rights case, where the Supreme Court left Section 5 of the voting rights intact, they just kneecapped it, right, so that it no longer had any impact— she made that plainly clear in her dissent with language that people still quote today. I mean, I hear people in conversation who use the language that she used about what the what the majority did was like tossing your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you hadn't gotten wet yet. 
that powerful language that can galvanize people to action. Have we restored the Voting Rights Act yet? No, we haven't. Does it remain front and center on the agenda? It does, and I think that that's important. And and the worst thing that could happen here would be if this opinion becomes law or, frankly, if the chief justice can get five votes for his view, which would sort of be like um, the Shelby countification of abortion, right? He would leave Roe versus Wade intact, but get the protections of Roe, probably by moving the goalposts on viability. We need to make sure that people stay engaged, that women and men understand that women's rights are being eroded powerfully. Um, if this opinion comes out in any way other than a full restatement of, of Roe. So I think those dissents are going to matter a whole lot. And, you know, listening to you talk about the dissents makes me think the leak, there's been a lot of discussion about who leaked, and I don't want to get into any predictions of who it was, but just the rationale for why one side or the other might have leaked and I have to wonder whether the leak here was like the bar letter and uh, press conference before the release of the full Mueller report, where by his taking center stage, he set the tone, he got his point of view out, he condensed it into, you know, no obstruction, no, no collusion. And before the real report, which said something quite different, was released, that had become the conclusion that Americans adopted, and they never bothered to listen to more. So is there a chance that the leak was, in part, sort of like the Barr attempt to quash the full truth from coming out? And by the time the dissents come out, everybody has accepted the rationale in Alito's draft opinion if it becomes the, the full court opinion. Do you think that's a possibility? You know, I honestly don't know what to make of the leak and the leaker's motivation. But, I, you know, I just, I hesitate to speculate. One thing, and Jill, we've discussed this before, I think to have this kind of leak of a full draft, which is, is largely unprecedented, yeah. I think this can only happen when an institution is on the decline. And so I, I think in many ways what this signifies mm is that um, the court's credibility, even inside of its own offices, are at a low. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is it is hard, of course, to predict. And, you know, there are a lot of theories. Um, and I do want to point out that while this is the only known draft opinion that was leaked, there have been leaks before, including In Roe, Roe right? Which was, Roe itself was given to Time magazine prior to it being read in court, and Time published it basically hours before it was read in court. Um, and the clerk who leaked it was actually Larry Hammond, who later became a colleague of mine in Watergate, and who was the, the clerk who came up with the idea of viability. That was his idea for how to draw the line uh, so it's very interesting. He obviously, um, he admitted he did it as soon as anybody asked and offered his resignation. He was chastised quite severely by the Chief Justice um, Berger, but 
he was allowed to remain as a clerk. Um, so, I, and I think, Victor, did you have a question about yeah, this Yeah, well, so Joyce, you mentioned the credibility of the institution and, and why this leak may have been leaked. Um, I was talking with some of my friends over the weekend and um, after this decision was um, released, and it's becoming really hard for, I think, young people to maintain any sort of semblance of confidence in the Supreme Court to protect their rights. I'm wondering what you think should be done to the Supreme Court. Should there be term limits? Should there be more justices added? What do you think will is there anything that could be done to regain my generation's confidence in the Supreme Court, or does it happen through elections now? So I think, yes, all of the above. And the question of what makes the court worthy of your generation's confidence starts with the court and long overdue internal reforms it needs to take, starting with ethics reform. I think that that's a big deal. You know, President Biden had a commission that looked into whether the court should be expanded or other um, reforms should be undertaken, and and that largely zeroed out. Some folks who were on that group, like uh, Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe, one of the leading constitutional law scholars in the country, deeply believes that the court should be expanded as does my former boss, Eric Holder, and they are two of the smartest constitutional scholars that I know. I worry a little bit um, that it becomes tit for tat, right? Democrats add four seats. The Republicans want four more seats. And we know that courts, when they get too big, become unworkable. The, The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers the West, is huge. And the judges literally can't read every published opinion that that court issues because it's gotten so big that it's in many ways it damages the body of law. The 11th Circuit, the circuit that I'm in, was split off of the 5th Circuit in the late 1970s. Is that right? Don't quote me. I want to say 78 or 79. But that split was because of that unmanageability problem. And so I, I do worry about a Supreme Court getting too big. I'm compelled, though, by an argument that Jill has made that the current number on the court matches the number of circuits that existed at a point in past history. Now we've got more circuits. We've got 11 plus the Federal Court of Appeals. And so you possibly could justify enlarging the court um, to better meet the needs of the circuit. One justice is assigned to each circuit to oversee, for instance, emergency appeals and stuff that comes out of that circuit. So that would make sense. The problem would be, how do you do it? And I think if you did it during, say, a Democratic administration and said, okay, the Democrats get to put four new justices on, it would be hard for Republicans to have confidence in the credibility of the court. And so I think despite the argument that I could make and have made that the way Republicans have behaved in holding seats open that should have gone to Democratic nominees and rushing justices through after voting had started in 2020, that that what they did was tantamount to stealing seats. I still think if you're going to expand the court, there would have to be some bipartisan process there. And like everything else, it's really messy. The odds that you're going to get Democrats and Republicans to agree on that is limited. So I think the burden for restoring confidence in the court falls on the court itself. They ought to act like a body who people in your generation can have confidence in. And that starts with not issuing hypocritical opinions um, that take away rights that have been in effect for 
almost 50 years. Is that unfair, Jill? No, I, I, I am um, a believer that the court has not kept up with the population, and I don't mean that in the political sense, which I guess is also true, but in the sense that nine made sense at a prior time in our history, and I'm not sure that it does anymore. Unlimited would be ridiculous. And if the Democrats were to, as a retaliation for two stolen seats, to add two seats, then the Republicans will come back. But I am also worried because um, Lindsey Graham has said outright the thing that you would think no one would say, which is, if we take control in the midterms, no nominee, and, and there is an opening uh, on the Supreme Court, no nominee will get considered. They'll do another Merrick Garland and will not allow a Democratic president to make a nomination and get it approved. That is an abuse of the constitutional powers that are given to advise and consent. And so I worry about that. Um, is there a realistic way to add and change the court given filibuster and given the fact that we haven't had the votes to abolish filibuster, which I think is one of the most anti-democratic rules that exists, and it is only a rule. It's not in the Constitution. It's a fairly new rule. One might say it's an unenumerated rule. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So before we run out of time, I, 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 I've appreciated both the background information about you and our serious discussion, but um, I can't end without talking about some of your more unique characteristics, which are chickens and knitting. We have to talk about at least those two things. And for our listeners who don't already follow you on Twitter and see the pictures of both your knitting and your chickens, and are you knitting right now, I'm first of all? actually not. Hold up your hands and let it's me see. It's a rare podcast <laughs> no. I'm not wow. knitting. I left my knitting upstairs in my bedroom and didn't realize till I sat down that I'd forgotten to bring it with me. I'm actually uh, knitting oh my a hat right now. It's really fascinating. The woman who wrote the pattern is is a very gifted mathematician, and it um, mm. follows the pattern of the columns in the capital. So it's called the capital hat, oh, and I'm really wow. enjoying watching oh, wow. it take shape. Oh my gosh! It's I can't fun. wait to that see that beautiful. one. What color it's is it? It's just gonna a be? natural color, but it's cashmere. It's pretty wonderful. Fabulous! Oh, fabulous! I mean, it's I've learned so much about the different kinds of yarns and listening to you, and I'm sort of motivated to want to learn, and I, I, I think you're never too old to learn, so You know, they not? say uh, that knitting helps your brain continue to make connections, and it can fight off against some of the side effects of aging, so you pick the oh, weekend. I'll come up to Chicago with yarn, <laughs> and we'll find some place with good coffee and knit. Ooh. Getting you to Chicago would be Worth all the time it takes to learn. We love to Chicago. Knit, for sure. We'll come up anytime. Just for the oh, hot dogs. Good. We, we talked right. about hot well, dogs with Kim and Barb. Just for that. Hot dogs and pizza, right? <laughs> yes. Hot dogs and pizza. Yes. Nobody can mm. compare with our pizza, of course. But um, yeah, it, and it's going to be in the eighties supposedly it's this week here. The weather is Chicago on crap, is right? In LA, yeah. The what? The weather is ridiculous. I mean, I I was all set to go on a trip this week. <sighs> And now I have to take out all the winter things I put in and switch to summer clothes. So I, I, it's a local trip, and I need to put in shorts and stuff. It's quite ridiculous. But anyway, I never thought of chickens as 
pets. <laughs> but you really, I mean, your chickens are adorable. They're good looking. They're so sweet. And they seem to get along with your they dogs do. yeah. and everything else. Um is that- yeah, they're they're surprisingly great pets. We like we often do plunged into it because of our kids. Our youngest kid, sort of in passing, said he wanted chickens at the start of the pandemic, um, and so we have chickens, and they're very engaging. Two of them are very talkative, Ruth and Pickles, and we sort of live in the city, so we have a long, skinny yard, and the chickens are all the way at the bottom. We put in a big coop next to our fire pit. And we have hawks, so we had to put up a covered run so that they can run around during the day and we don't have to worry about the hawks. But um, we let them free range in the mornings and they'll come all the way up to the house. And a lot of the time when I wake up, it'll be because I hear my husband saying, good morning, ladies. And it's very cute. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. And of course, now you mentioned your children. You have four children and... I think the youngest is going off to college, right? The youngest right? So, just finished his freshman year in yeah. college. Just yeah. came home for the summer. Oh, wow. So you are now basically empty nesters except for the summer. And is that going to change your life any, do you think? Will you know, make it easier to balance your work and life? You know, probably not. Our second kid was born with a congenital heart defect that has some other um, issues. So he lives at home with us. He actually, you'll love this, Jill, um, produces television news for a local station, but um, lives at home with us, which is super helpful because in many ways it means we have um, built-in company and there's always somebody to hang out with. Uh, But, you know, we do. We have big plans to go back to traveling. We had a big travel year scheduled at the start of the pandemic um, for the first time in a long time because of all of the kids. And, of course, we took none of those trips. So now we're eager to do a little bit of traveling. Aren't we all for sure? Well, I guess one last question to close out this podcast. Um, What do you tell young people who are thinking about going to law school or the legal profession? I think law school is a wonderful place to go with your eyes open. You know, some people are going to always go to law school because they want to be traditional lawyers, right? They either want to go into big law or they want to go back home to a small town and and be a solo practitioner. And I think those are great reasons to go to law school. But I have an additional one. The thing that I loved so much about law school is that it teaches you how to think like a lawyer. It teaches you to, to remove passion from the calculus and to think objectively and to look at an issue from multiple sides and to understand opposing views. And I value that way of thinking so strongly. I think it's beneficial to you if you want to go be a policy wonk. You know, I didn't realize that that was a career option when I went to law school, but I love policy. And I've um, shepherded a number of my students that direction, people who are just really interested in policy, particularly criminal justice reform, I think is an important area where we need smart minds right now. So Mm -hmm. you have a lot of options. If you want to run a not-for-profit Um, If you want to go into the civil rights field, perhaps in policy or in advocacy, law school is really helpful across a a broad range of career choices. Boy, nobody exemplifies that more than I do, (laughs) having gone from being a prosecutor to being a defense lawyer to being general counsel of the Army to being a corporate 
officer to heading a not-for-profit. Um, and I agree completely that the reason that I could do all of those things was what I learned in law school about how to analyze things, how to advocate for a position. And um, so it, it really helps. The one thing that I learned that I have tried to unlearn <laughs> is talking and writing like a lawyer because I think it's much better to talk like normal people talk. You know, and, that's so uh, so true. And can I just tell one quick story? Do we have time? Yeah. Sure. Um, when I was um, U.S. attorney, I co-chaired something called the Criminal Practice Subcommittee of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee. And at one point, one of our jobs was to make a very substantial revision to policy um, involving the videotaping of custodial interviews, which was something that hadn't been done and had been sort of a flashpoint issue. Mm-hmm. And we worked out a deal um, with the agencies that custodial interviews, that the the default would be that they would be videotaped. And so as we were writing the policy, I was ironically working with Rod Rosenstein, who went on to become the deputy attorney general um, under Trump. And Rod said, you know, if we're going to rewrite this stuff, Let's put it into plain English so that anybody can understand it. Because the the U.S. Attorney's Manual, like so many laws and and other legal documents, you know, briefs, it's written in this convoluted legalese. And we did. The stuff we rewrote, it was rewritten into plain English. And Rod, when he was the Deputy Attorney General, actually carried that further and continued to do some of that rewriting. I think that's a virtue that we should all strive for, to write in the English language so that people who aren't lawyers, just like people who are lawyers, can understand what we're doing. And that applies to the courts, too. And I think that's what makes you such a great legal analyst, is that you do talk in language that people can understand. And for all of our listeners, you should follow Joyce on Twitter and any other social media platforms, because she is a voice of reason and interesting perspectives. And thank you so much for being with us today. It has been a real fun pleasure for us, and I know it will be for our audience. Thanks, Jill. Thank you for those kind words. And Victor, we need to catch up next time I'm in Los Angeles. Yes, for sure. Thank you so much, Joyce. So, Victor, what was your favorite part of today's discussion with Joyce? I think there were so many memorable moments, but one of my favorite parts, other than getting to know her, was our discussion of um, Roe v. Wade and what's going to happen with that case. Obviously, it's a decision that's going to impact everyone, uh, especially my generation, the people who I've talked to, um, like I said on the episode over the weekend, some of the um, my peers in college, they're all just really scared about what's going to happen. Some of them are from out of state. Some of them are from the South. And so when they go back home for the summer, I don't know what's going to happen. And it's a really frightening reality for a lot of young people who once viewed the right to choose what she can do with her body as a right. I mean, that was something that I think my generation has grown up with and now um, may see that right disintegrated before our eyes. And it's a scary reality. And like we said on the episode, we don't know what's next. And maybe same-sex marriage is next, maybe voting rights, who knows? And um, I don't know, it's just a really scary reality. And I think um, Joyce helped us understand some of the background and some of the consequences of that decision and hopefully bring a little bit of comfort if there is any to our audience, um, just in terms of how to understand this case better. How about you, Jill? Well, what I hope for your generation especially is that it will motivate you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's okay to be frightened. That's a legitimate first reaction. 
but that fear has to be turned into mm -hmm. action. And that involves ousting anyone who is not pro-choice from government, whether it's at the state level, because right now, if this opinion stands, it will be up to states to set the rules. And so you don't want to be in a state that's going to take away that right. Uh, but also from the federal government, you need to vote in Congress and for president as if your rights depended on it because they do. So I hope your generation will be motivated, particularly on abortion. I fought for this right for more years than you've been alive, by double the number of years you've been alive. And it's not my fight anymore. It has to be your fight. If your generation doesn't care, and that's men and women, right. you have an right. equal stake in this, Victor. It's not just the women who will be denied this right, but it will be your partners, your friends, mm -hmm. your relatives, and you as a potential father who have mm -hmm. a concern about this. So. Keep that in mind. And, yeah, I, I think um, one of the, you said that so eloquently, and I think one of the things that young people, I think maybe fall into the habit of is, you know, we, I think we get scared, but then what is the next step for us? What type of action can we take? And I think we've seen it, I think just even after the decision, we've seen really large protests in DC and New York City, LA. Um, what are some other actions you think young people can take other than protesting and voting, um, on, on, at least when it comes well, to abortion? I, and I would put voting ahead of protesting yes, because yeah. the protesting may make you feel better. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it changes any anybody's votes in Congress, for example. And so voting them out of office is, of course, much more effective. And that takes strategy, it takes organizing, and it means supporting organizations that already exist, like Planned Parenthood, that are advocates and providers. And it means organizing your own. Um, you know, you and I have talked about this because we wanna do some follow-up on this issue, including uh, having Jim o Obergefeld on the show. But we also were looking for a young activist in this area. And honestly, we were having trouble finding one. So anyone listening who can think of someone who has been an effective organizer and advocate who is young, we would like to know about you. We would like to talk to you. So please get in touch with us through um, the, the show. And thank you very much for listening today. We hope you learned a lot and enjoyed yourself. See you next week. And Jill and I hope that you'll subscribe to us or follow us wherever you follow your podcasts and you'll leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts. If you watch this on YouTube, you can also subscribe to Politicon so that you can receive our weekly episodes every Wednesday. But in the meantime, we'll see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Thank you so much for listening or watching.